Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I've wanted to have Alex Kashuda on for a long time. Um, she is one of the most consistently interesting people on the internet, in my humble opinion. Um, she's the host of the Subversive podcast, uh, and she mans or woman's a stop sub stack now. Um, I think she'd also probably want me to make sure to introduce her as a mother and a wife, because um, I think she takes those vocations very seriously. Um, and yeah, uh, Alex, welcome to High Noon. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. And as this is, uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming. I'm very excited to be on. Uh, and uh, thank you for the, the, the kind intro. I, I, let's start with this. Uh, your intellectual journey to what I think you wouldn't object to uh, the label post-liberal um, is, is very much uh, seems to be intertwined with how you've chosen to live your life, um, how and where you've chosen, I should even say, to live your life. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about that, how you ended up where you are both sort of intellectually and, and physically back in um, Romania and in, I believe, in the town that you grew up in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess my intellectual journey pretty much maps on to uh, what I would probably call like a striver millennial uh, success story uh, in the beginning. I um, I was probably one of the better students in my little high school in my little town. Uh, I went to the regional Olympics in, I don't know, biology and, and German language literature and stuff like that. And then I went to uh, to college in, uh, in Austria and I studied my master's in Spain. So I've kind of, I was kind of like a small town success story, you know, going abroad. Um, and then I started working in, uh, in tech in London. Um, and that's where I spent probably, you know, the, the better part of my career working in tech and finance. Um, so I guess that's kind of the, the, the basis of throughout this time I was writing on different incarnations of blogs, you know, just throwing my work into the void because, you know, who would read it? It, it was just a kind of a more of a journal type blog. Uh, and then I, I wrote for Vice as well. Um, and I guess my, um, my journey was, um, uh, I mean, I, I, one of my, one of my majors in college was, uh, diversity management. So that was kind of the funnel that we were pushed through, like, you know, kind of all this, the, the wokeness was, was blooming and, you know, a, lo a lot of things like that were, um, becoming more interesting, uh, and more, um, I know we're attracting a bit more attention. And as a, you know, millennial striver, I was like, okay, what's, what's the thing that, that people, you know, of, of my generation are interested in? Uh, and that's kind of what I did as well. Um, and then I think after college, I became a bit more curious and I started kind of to delve back into economics, to delve back into the stuff that I was supposed to be studying at the so-called Austrian School of Economics. Uh, and uh, I found that they didn't teach us the whole thing. <laughs> they just uh, cherry picked a little bit. Uh, so I um, I became a bit of a libertarian, as, as one does, uh, was a very kind of rabid atheist for a very long time. Um, and then, you know, started working, became a bit more independent. Um, and then I, I guess, you know, the, the change for me happened when I uh, met real life. And I realized that a lot of the things that were in my head weren't really as, um, yeah, they just didn't pan out like in the literature, you know, like uh, all the feminism that I've been taught in school, um, all the, um, I don't know, the kind of a very redistributive kind of neoliberal ideas of, um, of, of how to, um, uh, yeah, organized the economy also didn't really seem to be working in, in reality. So I've, yeah, I kind of became a bit of an autodidact in that sense. And I mean, how, how did I get to post-liberalism? Um, yeah, a, a pretty long road, you know, I mean, with, with the long stop in libertarianism, 
Um, and then I guess it's, you know, just applying all the theories that I learned to real examples in, in the, in the wider world, uh, and seeing where there were points of failure. And, uh, there were many points of failure. Like, you know, with libertarianism, essentially, I feel like, uh, reality, you know, the reality of, of, you know, applying it to actual humans, applying it to, the uh, the wider field of power, the fact that you know you can throw power out the window and it comes back through the door, uh, and then essentially I think the biggest turning point for me when I was, was when I found um, the work of of Nick Land and then Menchus Molbug on on the internet and then went through the whole reading list and I guess kind of NRX was my portal into post liberalism. This is a very long rambling <laughs> complicated answer with a lot of parallels and tangents, uh, but I guess probably s- something like that. Maybe. <laughs> well, and, and you did something that a lot of folks actually that talk a lot about it online um, didn't do, which is you decided to essentially leave uh, the, the millennial rat race, you know, um, get married, have a child and move back to your hometown. Um, and so that I, that is interesting to me because I just I don't I feel like there, there's a lot of people who who are. Um, maybe have the same questions you had about, you know, community and, and atomization. Uh, but it doesn't seem either they don't have a home, which is interesting because like my family, for example, we really don't have like a home to move back to. My parents are immigrants to America. And um, even, you know, because of what happened in Poland during the war, like even <laughs> uh, it, it, there, there isn't really like a home to go back to um, in, in that kind of kinship sense. Um, but, but even folks who do, it, it seems like an unusual choice that you, you made to actually kind of put your, put your life where your, your mouth was, if, if that makes sense. Um, and actually, so, so have, has moving back home, you know, um, starting a family, have those things actually, I, I don't want to say like, have they solved some of these existential problems? Cause I think that's kind of impossible and too much of a burden to, but have, has it alleviated what you hoped it would alleviate? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, motherhood is, is especially kind of a, a phase shift. It's a, it's a, it's a completely different, um, it's kind of an entry in a different perspective on the self. Um, just because you can't afford to be self-centered and, you know, just be ruminating and navel gazing all day about, you know, your, your position at center of the universe, uh, because you're not at center of the universe. There is this extremely dependent creature that is, and you have to attend to it, um, uh, nonstop, you know, just completely be immersed in its life. And you know what? It's wonderful. It's just maybe, maybe I was so, you know, self-centered and narcissistic that, you know, the burden is even, even bigger than for, you know, your average person. But for me, it was really nice to be able to, you know, just, just be almost like physiologically absolved of the burden of the self in a way, you know, just to be able to, not constantly like, contemplate, you know, am I doing things right? Is this right? Like, you know, there's, there are immediate things to be done. Um, and the, the thing about, about becoming a mother, it's also, it kind of pulls you into a, a very embodied state. Like, um, there's no negotiating with the body. There's no negotiating with, you know, am I a brain in a vat? No, no, you're not. Like your, your, your phases are extremely hormonal. You're, you're tied into, you know, this kind of flux. There is a person inside of you while you're pregnant, which is also something that's, it's quite undeniable. It's not like you can just, you know, go about your business, you know, not thinking about it. It's, it's very immediate. It's very present. Uh, it's it's kind of a Zen thing as well. It's, it really kind of ties you into the present moment. So um, I think that was um, 
you know, I, I was thinking about these things, you know, for a longer time, even before I was, I was pregnant, but I feel like pregnancy was a bit of a crash course in, in all of the things that I, you know, that I felt were, were wrong with, you know, my life as this atomized millennial. Um, because, you know, there's that, I don't know if people can relate to this, but for me and the people that I was talking to in London and kind of in this really busy situation, uh, there's kind of this this background hum that's always there. And there's always kind of this questioning, okay, who am I? Where am I in the hierarchy? You know, am I doing this right? You know, where will this take me? And it's just anxiety is kind of the, the state that everyone is in. You know, be it either by the fact that you're in this loud hive of activity, there's no 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 chill in the city, there's no chill in your job, uh, or just because there's you know a huge status hierarchy and you're comparing yourself with everyone. You know, there's many ways to look at this, but um, there it's it's almost inescapable. And for me, it was you know an escape to to become a mother. But obviously, moving back to a smaller city, you know, the city is you know it's a hive of activity, but at a completely different scale. You know. Very, very chill compared to London, um, and becoming a mother, uh, becoming a wife as well. Um, you know, it's it's very different to dating in a big city. It's uh, it's it's a completely, um, I don't know. It's 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 you you kind of have a, a a huge commitment to this one person, and you've completely shifted gears uh, from you know the the incessant search or whatever. That's that's also kind of just a huge busy work that they impose on you. So, um, yeah, I mean, all of these things have kind of contributed to, I would say, yes, taking, taking a huge burden off of, uh, off of my, myself, I guess. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting because we're having this conversation right after famously Sheryl Sandberg, right? Um, the, the girl boss original, right. Um, has basically quit Facebook, I guess, meta now, um, and there's not it's not clear where she's going after um but it does feel like there there really is some kind of close of an era um like we're vibe shifting maybe away from from the girl boss um kind of ideal cuz this comes on the heels of a whole bunch of different think pieces i think there was one um i can't remember if it was new york magazine or or what but in one of these sort of mainstream lib publications that was called, I think, losing my ambition or dropping my ambition. Um, the pandemic seems to have shifted a lot of people's priorities. People have moved um, in, in the past two years. Um, I mean, how do you see, do, do, one, do you see that this is like a real kind of um, shift that is going to affect the mainstream or the structures around it? Or do you think that it's going to be a short-lived thing and we're going to kind of reorient liberalism again um around some you know slightly modified maybe this is just like literally like the fashions coming in and out and the the new working woman will not look like the 80s working woman who was you know trying to be very masculine um you know into sort of the 90s and 2000s into the girl boss era like maybe we'll just find a new archetype and it's almost just like changing what style (laughs) women wear or do you think this is something more uh fundamental that's happening yeah, I guess um it's it's a bit of both. I think, you know, there's there's always kind of like an, an aesthetic movement that precedes the actual kind of political shift that that's underneath. Um I think there is 
a vibe shift happening, um, especially because uh, I feel like a, a lot of these trends have reached critical mass, like, you know, updating up has kind of reached critical. I think people have, have realized that, you know, it was all kind of fun and games for the first few years, but it's completely kind of destroyed this this commons of relationships for a lot of people. Like there, there's so such kind of toxic dynamics happening there. There are a lot of people are just, you know, um, yeah, they're, they're just not, dis- they're disenchanted with the whole thing. Uh, even people who are successful at, you know, so-called updating. Um, and that's essentially, ha- that's become the norm in, in cities as well. And I think, you know, with, with work as well, um, I think what the pandemic has taught a lot of people is that one, their jobs either are, you know, soulless and it's easier to notice that they're soulless when you're at home uh, and you're kind of stuck in your house and, you know, you're just going from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting and, you know, it's just uh, kind of a busy work that, that you're, uh, you're made to do. Um, or they've, they realize that, you know, there are versions of their job that they can do from home. They can work part time. They can kind of take it a bit easier than they used to and nothing really terrible happens like nothing no nothing implodes so um i think there's there's definitely a new perspective on on you know what work is how to work and you know do we need to work this much um because i think a, a lot of the the things that attracted people to the workplace like for example the you know, what, what every company was trying to do is to kind of integrate people into a family feeling because a lot of people didn't really have a lot of, you know, close friends or family close. So obviously the workplace was trying to entice them with this, with this perk of, of having like a work family. And for a lot of people, that was probably their main source of socialization, which pretty much almost completely fell away because with these Zoom meetings, you see the, the people, but it's all business. There's no chit chat. There's no, you know, gossip. If you're not really trying hard, it's all, you know, reports and, and all that. And they realize, okay, this was pretty fun when, when I had friends at work, but now I just have people yelling at me about reports on a Zoom meeting on a, like, you know, maybe, maybe later than I would expect that meeting on a Thursday night or something. So um, I think that's changed as well. So I think, it was um it was a lesson for a lot of people about the nature of work and it you know it, it made you um, realize okay what is important to me do I want to continue this are there other ways to make money um you know there I think many people looked into maybe how to do things remotely or maybe how to uh, yeah a, a lot of people actually just quit completely you know maybe they realized you just don't need um the perks that that came with the job and you know maybe the money wasn't that good so. Yeah, they're they're reassessing completely. So I think um, it was um uh, you know it was a terrible time, obviously, and you know a lot of a lot of fallout in many directions. But I think it was a good uh, learning opportunity for a lot of people about what exactly it was that they were um, that they were trying to achieve by having these jobs by you know striving. Yeah, I mean, here in the U.S., uh, there was also a lot of sort of involuntary aspect of it as well. Um, just especially with schools remaining closed as long as they did. I mean, um, and, and childcare becoming prohibitively expensive for a lot of people, you know, the, the, the marginal, they ended up with a very marginal amount of money. Whereas, but I think you're right in the, in the larger sense that that marginal amount of money was actually, if you just took it on financial terms, that wasn't a make or break for a lot of families discovered like, Hey, this isn't actually, a make or break thing for us. Yes, we're going to have to tighten our belt in a certain way, but you know, this, this, what's left of, um, you know, a second salary on top of childcare costs, on top of trying to drive yourself absolutely nuts, taking care of kids at home and working at the same time. Um, they realized that that marginal thing was probably less than they thought it was. Um, 
But I, I think on top of that, I think you're totally right in the deeper sense. Um, people have reconsidered whether that social hub or that status um, that was sort of intangible because people will say it's about money. And and for don't get me wrong, for a lot of families, it, it really is. They need that second income. But I think especially that demographic that writes, you know, um, articles in, in the, <laughs> you know, in the New York, in New York magazine or whatever, um, in, the, in the New York Times uh, personal section. Uh, they they maybe realized that the the money was more marginal than they were assuming, and that the other aspects, the um, running yourself ragged just for sort of status purposes, was maybe not as worth it as they just kind of assumed that it was. Um, but I wanted to ask you something specific about um, Romania and and where sort of the. I, I, I'm wondering if you see something similar, and I know actually um, from online cons- com- uh, conversations and then also your podcast, we, we disagree probably si- pretty significantly on on Ukraine, um, although not as significantly as I think maybe people on either side of us do. Um, but I'm wondering what you think is kind of happening in Eastern Europe, because it seems to me that there's this very, if it wasn't so tragic, <laughs> it would be actually like really intellectually interesting because it seems like a lot of the countries, the smaller countries in Eastern Europe, whether that's Romania, um, but even like larger countries within there, whether it's Ukraine or Poland, um, they're, they're kind of stuck between two things, right? Which is an increasingly wokeified Western Europe and America um, that is more and more insistent on cultural imposition that there is a real backlash building to. And on the other hand, there are, there's like traditional 19th and 20th century hard power. There are Russian Russian tanks to your right and, you know, sort of woke NGOs to your left or woke, woke sort of capital power to your left, right, um, on the map anyway, and maybe more metaphorically. But where do you think that space is like what's going to happen, um, not just geopolitically, but but politically within these countries? So like you've seen Hungary basically taking one route, which is accommodation with Russia um, Poland taking the exact opposite route and saying there's no way that we will ever accommodate the Russians ever again. <laughs> um, but it, it seems like almost like 19th and 20th and even before that sort of ethnic and, and real history is colliding with these very global level ideological forces um, that in a way that that is leaving a very unpalatable choice for a lot of people, um, let's say between Warsaw and like <laughs> Kiev. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like you said, there's a, a huge diversity in, you know, in, in these countries. Cause a lot of people talk about Eastern Europe. Well, Eastern Europe, you know, just because of, um, you know, the, the level of, of firstly, the level of kind of penetration of communism, each of these countries is completely different. Uh, their level of um, influence from the Soviet Union is very different. Um, the way they um, they stopped being communist was also very different. And what they've done afterwards is also completely different. I mean, I, I live, what, five-minute drive from, from Hungary. Um, these are two very different countries. They're being governed very differently, and they, they have different mentalities about, about things. Like, for example, but, uh, you know, Hungary is in a way the buffer between Romania and Europe, and in many ways Romania is much closer to, to Europe, you know, the European Union than, than Hungary is, because yeah, Hungary just has its, its, own, its own vibe, its own style of, of, of doing things, you know, love it or leave it. But, um, yeah, and, and, you know, Poland has a, you know, a very... A different type of history with with Russia as well. I think in Romania, the the, the main difference is that we haven't had um, direct contact with Russia as kind of a civilization state 
um, since, since Ceausescu, since, you know, we were kind of uh, under the, um, the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union because we were never part of the Soviet Union proper. So, um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a different thing. I think Romania is, is pretty much in the overall in the camp of, you know, being anti-Russian, uh, aligned with Ukraine and essentially doing what Europe you know, what, what the position is in Europe. So there's not really that much differentiation there. So essentially we're probably more aligned with, with Poland than we would be with, with Hungary in this case. Um, in, in, I guess my, my expectation of what's going to happen. Um, I think it, it depends very much on, on, you know, what exactly the, um, the secondary effects are of this crisis, because even though obviously I'm against the aggression that's happening in, in Ukraine. But I feel like uh, a lot of people see this as on, I feel like a, quite an emotional level. Okay, there is war happening. We have to be anti the war. Who is the aggressor? You know, smite the aggressor. Who is the, the victim? We need to help the victim. Agree with help the victim, but you know, how to smite the aggressor, how to, how to manage that is, is, is a question because, you know, the aggressor is an, a civilization state in itself. The, the victim is a, a country that, you know, is, is, to be honest, is either in the sphere of influence of Russia or in the sphere of influence of the EU and not in the sense that, okay, this is a completely independent democratic country. It is not. It's either run by, you know, a cabal of NGOs from, you know, the, the Western parts or it's run by a cabal of, you know, oligarchs that have ties to Russia or some, some combination of the two in different regions, which is essentially what happened until, you know, five minutes ago and when this conflict erupted. So um, I feel like a lot of people maybe have a, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a rosy view of how, what Ukraine actually used to look like before this whole thing started. You know, it wasn't necessarily as it wasn't Switzerland. It was, you know, it's it's a country at the periphery of empires and similar to Romania as well. I mean, our luck is that we're, we're not really that close to Russia. We're not, you know, we didn't used to be part of Russia. There are not no territorial claims except for Transnistria, which is essentially the, the Republic of Moldova, which is kind of, it's a different country. Um, so it's, you know, we're kind of lucky in that sense, but, um, you know, all countries in this sphere, I mean, we are now essentially, um, we're a partner of the European Union, but if you, if you looked at it from maybe a longer historical time frame, you would say we're a vassal state of the EU and, you know, the, the, the Brussels bureaucracy. So, um, it, the, there are client states in this area. There's no really, um, independence is, is a, is a very tall order here. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess where where I'm leading with this is that uh, it's it's pretty hard to predict exactly what's going to happen with the Western powers. I mean, you know, in part, my podcast does you know I, I document the many ways in which the Western powers are failing at the moment, um, how fast these failures will materialize, you know, um, how fast uh, the countries in Eastern Europe will realize that you know there are failures. Maybe the Western powers will be able to right the ship that that could be happening, or maybe Russia and China will, will uh, ally in in light of what's happening in the EU and with the U S and build um, a kind of a, you know, consortium of civilization states in their own right, uh, an economic zone that is essentially unbeatable uh, by, by the West because, you know, they've decided, okay, sanctions are more important than, maybe realpolitik in this situation. So I don't know. There, there's many factors here. And I feel like what I'm resisting is the the kind of um, the context collapse that we're all kind of forced to participate in that, okay, there's a bad guy and there's good people and we need to, you know, d- apply massive force to the bad guy. And, uh, and that's the only consideration here. I think 
this is a complicated thing. I don't like the Russians. You know, we have a you know huge list of family lore about how much we hate the Russians. Believe you me. But I, I also think, um, you know, I don't think, you know, Putin just woke up one day and he's an absolutely crazed man. And the only thing he wanted, you know, for breakfast was Ukrainian blood. So it's, it's just, <laughs> I feel like that's, uh, for a lot of people, that's kind of the narrative that you have to buy into or, uh, or else you're, I don't know, a Putin shill carrying water, doing all sorts of things. So I don't know. I, I see my camera's a bit out of focus. So I might, I'll fix this somehow, but. Yeah. yeah um, one of the things you touched on that I think is really interesting, and I, I feel myself like caught in this sort of whiplash back and forth, is that, and I, I keep trying to communicate to people, it's like, <laughs> in Eastern Europe, liberal democracy is not like a, a, a sort of, they, they aren't fatigued and cynical with it, right? Like, liberal democracy means shelves that are full of stuff. Like, the, the West means... Um, you know, first of all, the kind of political freedom, but not in the sort of abstract way that we talk about it, maybe in the West, um, more in 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 the sense that, like, there's a guy in the palace and he's literally stealing all the money. Um, and that's I, it, largely like, for example, the Belarusian protests that happened, you know, a couple years ago, which I actually think is a really good test case. Um, and it shows that there is really a clash of of. Um, civilizational values uh, with a bunch of little nationalisms in it, the, the way that Putin responded to to Belarus, right, by, by keeping Lukashenko in power. But they had no pretensions to sort of join the West in terms of actually joining NATO or joining the EU, right? Um, especially in the beginning of the protest, they had, it was literally, this guy is stealing everything uh, in this country and everybody is still poor um, and we don't want to live in the hangover from the Soviet Union. Um but it, it, it's it's I don't know it's 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 this this weird whiplash when we're so um, kind of play the concepts that once animated liberal democracy for us in the West they feel very hollow now um, to an increasing number of people particularly on the right but I, I think people kind of feel this that uh, we we are either in some kind of crisis of of um, liberalism itself I I still tend to consider myself a type of liberal. Um, but like we, we are in some kind of crisis of liberalism itself and the people, the very same people who once would have been the most um, un, uncontroversial or um, that's not the word I want. Um, they, they, they wouldn't have had any doubts about, for example, projecting liberal democracy or the values of liberal democracy, whether that was in prudent or imprudent ways, right? Whether that was, um, you know, like supporting, for example, solidarity in Poland or wh whether that was, you know, the imprudent idea that you can transplant liberal democracy into Iraq. Um, but, but nevertheless, in both cases, a kind of uh, unself-reflective, uh, positive affirmation, like this is the best system that exists. Um, this, this respects certain aspects of humanity, of our, our natural rights, and this is the, the correct system. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easily transplanted or that we should take over the world and sort of impose it on everybody. Um, but that kind of unself-reflective or, or unconflicted patriotism, not just for the, the nation, but for the the system, is much, much harder to summon now when we see what seems like the the, the real collapse of competency of, of um, some of these democratic forms. Uh, and then within liberalism itself, the inability to answer some of what seem like more fundamental questions about who we are and how we should live. Um, but I, I, 
I, again, the, the, the whiplash part of this is then you talk to people in Eastern Europe and they're like, no, obviously the Western system is better. There is food on the shelves, <laughs> right? Which is also true. Mm-hmm. It, it just is true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, a, a lot of, um, you know, post-liberal thought and the people who kind of come on my podcast and what we discuss is, okay, we try to take apart all the elements of this in the sense, okay, what exactly is it in liberalism that ends up making, producing the food and putting it on the shelves? Um, what exactly are the, the fundamental assumptions of liberalism that are in, in failure mode right now? Um, are they, you know, can we have one without the other? Uh, are they the same thing? Like, for example, you know, the idea that, um, you know, liberalism Im- implies the idea that, you know, everyone is, is, is equal and, uh, you know, everyone, um, you know, needs to have the same, same opportunities. Um, I mean, obviously you can interpret this from, from, from many ways. And, you know, once you have, um, equality under the law, then that's one standard. But then it seems like that slides into an expectation for equity after a while, uh, which is essentially the point where where we are now. So a lot of these assumptions, um, you know, they are, I think, conducive to um, the, the food on the shelves, but I don't necessarily think that they're a necessary precondition. So, um, I mean, you know, for me, coming out of Romania, I remember, you know, the first time I went, uh, I crossed the border, I think it was like a gas station in Hungary, or I think maybe Germany or something. And I remember seeing, you know, all the candy in the gas station and like, you know, why is there candy at the gas station? I started just opening up all the, all the packets of candy on the shelves, because in Romania, you only had like a, a store where you went to a a window and you asked for the food and they would give it to you there. So I thought, okay, if there, there's candy on the shelves here, that, that would mean that, you know, it's, it's easily accessible for kids like me, you know, it's, it's here for the taking. So I just kind of ransacked that gas station. Uh, and it's just, it's, it, it was huge shock. Um, and I, you know, even now it's a huge shock. You can very, very well tell even when you're coming from Hungary to Romania that, you know, you've, you've crossed the border. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, whatever mix of stuff they have going on in the West, we want some of that. Essentially, that's kind of the, the intuitive grasp of, of politics that we have here. And I feel like, um, a, a lot of the things that came from our cooperation with the European Union have been, have been a lot of upside. And I think, um, a lot of it is, you know, these states essentially are run by mafias. That's kind of mafia is, is how, you know, politics is organized pretty much I guess, in Hungary as well, maybe less so because they have a, a little bit, a bit of a different uh, civilization state themselves. Uh, but in Eastern Europe and, and beyond, that's kind of how it works. And what the European Union has done is kind of uh, alleviate that state a little bit. Um, because there is oversight and there's oversight from, you know, an, an organism that doesn't really want to deal with mafia. It wants to deal maybe with a cleaned up version of mafia where, you know, there's an org chart to this mafia and, you know, it's, you can't really just, you know, on a whim hire your cousins and, you know, there, there needs to be a bit of procedure. So they've really put a damper on the mafia here a little bit. Um, you know, not completely, obviously, because it's all kind of <laughs> professional managerial mafia. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, um, and I'm not saying that there's not kind of a semi equivalent in the West as well when, you know, building these, you know, huge NGOs and, you know, in the European Union itself, you know, that's, that's also kind of a, a cabal. <laughs> but, uh, here we just had, you know, classical Cosa Nostra style mafia. Um, and like I said, the European Union helped. Uh, but I think, um, you know, a, a lot of, you know, the, the questions of, um, you know, why is there abundance? You know, how does wealth, you know, get created? You know, like a, a lot of people in the West now answer 
the question of why does wealth, how gets wealth created, uh, how, no, how wealth gets created with the question, oh, you know, but why is there poverty? Like, that's not, that's not the question. Poverty is the, the basic state of, of humanity. Uh, and the fact that, you know, you have to be in an extremely wealthy situation to become, to, to ask the question, oh, the, why does poverty exist? Uh, you know, it's, I feel like, you know, there's, there's also kind of a, a crisis uh, of abundance in the West as well, where, you know, kind of people, um, are allowed to, um, have allowed themselves to ask these questions just because it does not occur to them that, you know, just complete, uh, <laughs> lack of, lack of resources is, is the, is the basic state. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm rambling, but, uh, I, I guess, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, um, the position where we are. There's a lot of intuitive politics, but there's not really, I don't know exactly if, uh, if Eastern Europeans are, you know, they, they think about, uh, you know, liberal democracy, you know, and they, and they think about the founding fathers or something like that. They think about abundance. They want some, uh, how do you get it? That's kind of the question in, in everyone's mind here. And it seems to be like, okay, we just implement whatever they're doing in the West. Um, you, you don't think that those things are inextricably, because you're talking about how do we create prosperity without essentially some of the downsides of liberalism. You, you don't think that prosperity itself creates alienation because it, if we're talking about maybe two categories of, of community and ties, right? It's There's the chosen and the unchosen. Um, but prosperity itself puts almost everything into the, the, the chosen category, right? Like even your relationships with your family, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's the same thing. It seems to me it's the same thing with like easier or a hard divorce, right? Um, it, it both have like serious kind of personal downsides, but if, if divorce or leaving your family correspondingly comes with, you know, starving on the street, um, very, very few people, are going to do it, right? You're going to have to have like a really, really, you're going to have to fear for your life um, within your family in order to to risk ending up on the street like that. Um, but but have we just created, you don't you don't think those two things are like sort of inextricable that people like to use your favorite economics term that it's, it's a, um, what is it? It's like a revealed preference, right? That um, as soon as people, uh, as soon as people are rich enough, uh, they have a revealed preference for sort of always, choosing autonomy um, and they only realize much later it's kind of like a, a ultimate marshmallow test right where they always realize that it actually maybe doesn't make you happy in the long run but in, in each moment it's always going to be a revealed preference for people to choose what they want at any given moment and to choose autonomy if they can yeah of course and yeah i, th I think these two um at that level are, are definitely kind of inextricable um i mean i think you know there's, there's also the, the the fact that um kind of uh, abundance delivers kind of non-linearly. I think there's kind of, um, how can I put it, maybe like a, um, a low-hanging fruit level of, of civilizational abundance. And then there is kind of, you know, because essentially what, what you have um, uh, with liberalism is kind of like the, the kind of the philosophical uh, veneer over the fact that, you know, the only thing that we care about is, you know, pointy line go up. You know, we, we really care about GDP. We really care about essentially measurable indicators of um, growth. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's obviously kind of the, the, the path we've been on for, for a while. Um, and I feel like, you know, liberalism is kind of the, 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 the philosophical um, cover for all of that. Um, and I think, you know, what post-liberalism does and a lot of people think about is that, okay, after the low-hanging fruit has been plucked and after, you know, a certain level of abundance has been reached, 
Uh, will every unit of additional abundance, what does that deliver? Is there, you know, is there a straight line go up or is there kind of a, you know, a bell curve where, you know, uh, there's a diminishing marginal return, so to say, uh, for every additional unit of abundance. And, you know, also there's a question of how that abundance is distributed because a lot of people would say, okay, not everyone partakes in that abundance in the West. You know, there are still people who are on the poverty line. But even when you consider that, you know, if you look at some of the the poorest areas, even in, you know, the, the civilized states of the West, um, you see a lot of problems that are um, essentially, you know, created by an overabundance of limbic capitalism. A lot of, you know, there's a lot of traps in these places. You know, there's gambling parlors. There's, a, you know, essentially a, a, a lot of, in, like, the worst food on the planet is there, you know, there's a lot of places where it's not like there's no food and shelter and it's not like these people can't access these, these things, but they, they essentially get in a way the best limbically, the best products there are, the most, most dopamine stimulating things on the world. Uh, and they can access them either through their own money or through food stamps or whatever welfare. Um, but uh, it's, it's not necessarily, they're not really reaping the the fruits of abundance. And I feel like, okay, uh, you know, add an additional unit of abundance to these uh, to these neighborhoods. W- what exactly are you getting? You know, add UBI to this. You know, there's a lot of people who who see UBI as kind of a um, uh, sorting out the problems that you know the the externalities of, of liberalism. But you're essentially just adding fuel to a dysfunctional fire uh, for a lot of these people because that's I don't think an additional unit of whatever that is is what they need. So I don't know. It's um, you know it, it, the problem is then you have something like kind of paternalism sneaking, which is very anti-liberal, very post-liberal. You know where it's like, um, do we want to be guiding these decisions? Do we want to you know hamper you know uh, freedom? You know what does freedom mean? Like some are some people freer than others if they are more um, able to um, you know um, regulate themselves in front of limbic capitalism, like we see. You know a lot of the people in Silicon Valley who produce these things you know are on 10-day retreats they have like an aesthetic lifestyle where they only eat i don't know beef jerky and you know sleep on the floor and do all sorts of crazy shit that you know your your average person you know wouldn't even consider so uh i don't know i think these are kind of the questions that i'm asking you know is this is this you know a failure of liberalism maybe um some things aren't working is the whole system scrappable Probably not. <laughs> it's it's definitely delivered in the past. So I don't know. I mean, it's not like um, you know, there's uh, we're cooking up some some alternative system here that's gonna you know it's gonna blow everyone's socks off. Uh, but I feel like there are there are quite a, a few good questions to be asked, and that's kind of the the point of the show. Yeah, I I guess I fall more in the in the camp of that that liberalism has limitations um, than than the idea that it's it's actively the problem. Um, I, I, there's a great Irving Crystal essay on this, by the way, um, Il- Irving, not Bill, but uh, on Good. that, that eval- evolves into um, eventually a piece. It's called um, published called two cheers for capitalism. Right. Um, but th- there, there are limitations. Uh, and, and it certainly seems like even l- laying aside the, the, the philosophy uh, involved it, it definitely seems like even on a, what you would call a limbic level, right? Like even feeding the receptors in your brain, um, that, that there is something to constraint, uh, that, that freedom only tastes so sweet when, uh, pushed up against constraints. And the problem that, that repeatedly happens is once the constraints completely collapse, uh, you, you end up with, um, 
anxiety, like sort of floating, um, and, and and even the the sort of rewards um, are not are not felt in the same way. And thinking it's there's kind of a parallel, at least in my view, in art, right, where every new generation kind of breaks down some form that was in the previous one. Um, and some of that produces, in my view, like absolutely beautiful artwork, right? I'm not, I'm not a wholly um, sort of anti, anti-modernist. Um, but you do get to a point where you collapse the frames that you're subverting completely. And then you end up with a banana taped to a wall, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like somebody painting with their own poo or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> because they, they actually don't have any constraint. And there's actually, there is a requirement of constraint even within freedom to be, to create anything worth creating. Um, but I guess you can call it the, like, even in gender, you could call it the, uh, I tweeted, tweeted this the other day, but the, the David, the David Bowie to like cat gender Demi boy pipeline, right? Like <laughs> where it, what David Bowie was, was doing was only interesting because there are the categories of male and female. And once you destroy that, then you, it's not interesting anymore. It's just like a mess an undifferentiated mess. Um, but I guess how 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 do we um, sort of break through some of one where does this where does religion fit into all of this because we we haven't really talked about it um, and and two how do we break through this kind of malaise like if we are the people you know taping bananas to the wall metaphorically here um, you know it seems to me we have this very difficult problem of trying to reconstruct limits um, in in and some kind of constraint within a context where everybody has an incentive to defect, right? Yeah. Um, you can have get a lot of people to agree that there's something sort of viscerally wrong with the meaningless way in which we live our lives. But um, the actual imposition of limits requires us to decide, for example, what values we're going to just make non-negotiable, right? Um, and, and that becomes extremely difficult in a world that's already so truly diverse um, in terms of, of commitments and values. So, do you think that project is even possible? I mean, it, 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 without, I mean, how, how do we reconstruct any limits in this, in this world at all? Yeah. The, you know, depending on the day, I think it is, <laughs> I think it isn't, you know, it's a, it's a black pill day or a white pill day. Um, I, you know, essentially, yeah, I think, you know, you, you, you made the, the, the core point here, you know, once we have enough abundance, we're limitless in the, um, you know, constraints from nature, which is essentially what we've been battling with, for our entire existence, we were, you know, battling the, the battle of reproduction, the one of shelter, the one of food. Um, and now we're at the point where we really don't have to, to, to fight those battles. And we've just kind of have these, um, you know, what, uh, what, um, what Uncle Ted was calling, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, com- I don't know, was that complementary activities or something, uh, you know, something that is not, you know, the, the essential struggle for, for survival. It's, um, surrogate activities, exactly. Um, and, um, these are kind of by, by nature, they're, they're unlimited. They're, they're self-chosen. They're, you know, so I think a lot of this stuff is built into the machine of modernity, uh, and of post-modernity, which is, you know, kind of the, the strange liquid world that we inhabit now. Um, I think religion for a lot of people is the shortcut. I mean, for me as well. I mean, that's, it's essentially, I'm not, it's not like I've, I'm some person who's, you know, I've seen the light and I've had like some sort of epiphany. Um, I've kind of, um, arrived at religion through kind of like a, you know, <laughs> mathematically through like a via negativa. I really, I, I, I can't imagine a life where there wasn't 
uh, something like religion. So essentially, kind of, I've 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 convinced myself of it, but you know, I've, I'm also I'm still waiting for the epiphany. Um, but it's uh, it's essentially a a shortcut to constraint, you know, and it's a it's a tried and tested, um, you know, uh, essentially kind of civilizational method. Um, because you know, if if we admire the the civilization states of the West, um, we kind of have to admire the, the Judeo-Christian you know substrate that they've grown on. Um, and uh, you could also argue that it it you know it couldn't have been so without without that substrate. You know, there there is um, a perspective on the individual that actually uh, enables the autonomy that we're talking about that just did not exist in, in any other perspective, uh, you know, philosophically or religiously before. Um, you know, the the human was more of a super organism, you know, with the tribe rather than, you know, it's his own individual having a personal relationship with God. So um, I think that's also, um, you know, kind of revelatory of, of, you know, the role that religion kind of has to play in a system like this for it to work. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of the, you know, it's, it's instant constraints, I would say, for a lot of people, especially people kind of rediscovering the faith after being an atheist. Like, like I was for the, for the longest time or, um, or people who are just looking for, um, for any sort of anchor point, you know, in, you know, they're, they're swimming, they're marinating in liquid modernity and they want to hang on to something. And these are communities that are based around values that are legible, that are, um, you know, pro-social, that lead to children, that lead to a lot of things. Are there, you know, negative sides to these communities? Absolutely. I'm sure there's a lot of hypocrisy, uh, you know, Ted Haggard style things that are happening in the shadows. But at the same time, uh, there's also a lot of upside. So um, I think that's kind of why people are, are slowly, you know, trying to trying to find their way back to, to religion, um, you know, more or less tentatively. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a, um, a trending <laughs> position. Yeah, I've I've come around. Uh, one of one of the things that probably I've changed my mind the most about um, is hypocrisy itself. Uh, I think I was I was very, and maybe you had these tendencies too, but um, I still am. Like my my sort of personality tendency and, and mental tendency is to be absolutely like gutted by and, and disgusted by hypocrisy. But the the more I I look around, like the more actually a world and w- that accepts a certain level of hypocrisy is just. I guess the 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 pithy way to say it is the the tribute that um, virtue pays to vice, right? But or vice pays to virtue. Uh, I can't remember which way, but uh, that actually hypocrisy is the the inevitable result of actually having some kind of public standard, um, which which actually ends up having better outcomes than if you don't have the standard and everybody is fully honest about um, every time they violate the standard. I mean, I I, I have actually come around to the idea, for example, that. Um, Back in the day when the press just wouldn't report, for example, on JFK's many sort of sexual escapades, that that was actually in many ways superior, that Americans could look at the presidency in a different way um, that broke when Bill Clinton's sexual escapades became sort of front page news and everyone had to read about Monica Lewinsky and what he did with cigars, right? Like, so... I'm coming around hypocrisy is what I'm saying is like a necessary evil, but... um, I actually wanted to pick up on something that's maybe more superficial that you said a while, uh, just a couple answers ago that about the, the Silicon Valley people, you know, sort of doing this weird body hacking and having biz- bizarre diets and um, in many ways, like living the way that uh, certain kinds of like monks lived. <laughs> uh, but because it, it seems to me that there's a flip side here as well, which there's kind of a left wing version and a right wing version of this. Um 
the left wing version being eat only particular, you know, three seeds and beef jerky and live in the desert. Um, and, and the right wing version being, I, I think the community that's, that's building around bodybuilding, for example, I mean, why, why do you think, what impulses do you think those two things are filling that they seem to resurrect themselves in the, in two different ways, depending on the sort of mindset, um, and, and views, uh, and worldview of the two sides? Cause there's no, first of all, maybe you just disagree with me. Maybe you think they, they're different impulses, um, uh, but they no, seem to no. me to be like similar in some way. No, I think I think they're um, they're the same impulse, and I think it's just kind of a, a testament to how strong the um, kind of semi-religious commitment to these. You know, the, the stronger you um, affiliate yourselves with these egregores, with these meme plexes, with these just like bundles of ideas. I mean, they're they're not religions, but they're kind of uh, you know bundles of concepts that you identify with. Um, you know, the 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 more serious you are about something, the probably the probability of dietary restrictions grows, you know, exponentially. Uh, so you know, you could you could see this. You know, even even in Judaism, the, the more serious you are about Judaism, the the less likely you are to have I don't know a shrimp cocktail <laughs> or uh, yeah. So it's I think um, I think uh, you know religions all over the world have uh, different types of dietary restrictions and. It's probably a human universal that, you know, to be a part of the tribe uh, in that level or to adhere to the strictures of this, uh, you know, to, to commit yourself to the right wing bodybuilder club, you need to ingest a breast milk. You need to be going out of your way to get the raw Jersey cream. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you can, you can bleep that out. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, there's different things that you can do. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just, a, I think, um, signifies a level of commitment to, you know, to, to whatever you believe in. <laughs> I, I never thought that I would associate in my mind BAP and um, Kim Kardashian, but in many ways, <laughs> I think on this, on this side, they're kind of similar. Um, but it, it has been interesting. I also wonder how much this is like, uh, this whole topic interests me in terms of how people relate to death and in, in modernity. And I do think that there's some element of, of um, in Silicon Valley, it's like, if I eat in this very particular way, then I can extend my life um, to see what new technologies might ultimately come about and then hopefully upload my, you know, my pilot, my brain pilot to my out of my meat suit and into the metaverse. Right. Um, and then on the right, it also seems to me like in some way to be, not wanting to deal with the fact of decay and death. Um, and I talked to Spencer Clavin about this cause he's a big iron man, lift heavy stone kind of guy. Um, and obviously these things are like, to some degree, these things are good. It's good to have a healthy diet. It's good to like exercise your body and, and be strong. Um, but it, it, the level of commitment to some of these things, it does stray into, as you said, I think the religious almost. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone has their surrogate activities. <laughs> you need to be doing something. Um, I guess they they would probably say that you know their commitment is to uh, kind of some some eternal um, value of beauty and kind of human excellence, uh, which is probably not the same. Even though maybe in in many in many cases the results are very similar. Um, then uh, you know, for maybe someone who's like vegan because of a whatever commitment to to animal welfare or or the climate, uh, which are just also kind of eternal values, you know, uh, Mother Earth, Gaia type uh, ideas. Um, I think, you know, it's, uh, 
uh, you know, the, the contemplation of death, you know, has, is, is also a, a human universal, I guess, you know, different people cope in different ways um, with it. It's, you know, my, my strategy has been to just not think about it, <laughs> try, to, try to, try to just block it out. Um, and also, you know, kind of try to, um, you know, slowly uh, a, a adopt the perspective of my newfound religious <laughs> religious uh, feeling, and and you know try to just make my my peace with it. But yeah, I could I could imagine that you know uh, bodybuilding might be might be keeping some other people warm at night, or yeah, whatever uh, other other activities. Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, and for those of you who don't listen to Subversive, you should you should subscribe, listen. Um, but she always asks at the end um, all of her guests who they think, who's a thinker or um, a writer that they think have not, uh, has not gotten enough circulation. And when I came on your show, I completely had like a Sarah Palin moment where I just ran through 50 people in my head and said, no, her audience knows all these people. It was all really, really basic. And then just like froze up. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you the same, the same question. Um, you, you have a real sort of intellectual curiosity, curiosity, and you, you've read, uh, I would say a much wider uh, swath of of thinkers, philosophers, writers than most people ever will, because um, just just all the way from like libertarianism to like Alexander Dugan, <laughs> you, you you've really um, bridged the, the the spectrum of political philosophy and psychology. Um, is there somebody in there that you think um, has not gotten circulation that maybe has something particularly helpful that is just not being added in the in the mainstream conversation at all? Oh yeah, this is always a surprisingly hard question because I sometimes I think about it, but it's it's just because I've 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 heard so many, I've thought about it so much that I'm just like you know it's easy to freeze up. Um, but um, I actually I, I probably would recommend someone who's who's not necessarily unknown, uh, but he might be unknown in kind of a maybe a philosophical context, maybe also because of the marketing of this book. And it's, it's a, a philosophical, uh, philosopher. Maybe he wouldn't describe himself like this. It's, uh, it's Matthew Crawford. Um, and he has, um, um, a book now I'm, <laughs> I'm blanking on the book. Uh, but he essentially, his work is, um, is around, um, kind of recapturing attention. The marketing around his work is, it's kind of very self-helpy, but I think it's, it's quite philosophical. Um, and, uh, Oh, I just I I can't remember the title of the book. Like, it's, it's surprising because uh, I I just I have it on my nightstand. I'm reading it currently. Uh, but yeah, he's essentially has as multiple books. I mean, his first book was called uh, Shop Class: A Soul Craft, and it's all about the um, kind of the the regaining of embodiment in um, in in the in daily life. Because essentially, he's talking about kind of limbic capitalism, kind of the essential. Uh, the marketplace of attention and how you could um, you can essentially use um, craftsmanship and working with your hands to to bring yourself back into an embodied state. He's an excellent writer. I'm not really doing him justice by this this summary. Um, and yeah, I think that's you know his his entire body of work, especially his last book, which I'm blanking on, is uh, is is really good. And yeah, like I said, he's not necessarily an unknown guy, but I feel like there's. Um, there's a philosophical undercurrent there that uh, is, is mismarketed. It's uh, it's it's extremely interesting, and he's a very deep thinker about uh, a lot of the problems that um, you know post liberals think about. You know, all all the, this whole space that's opened up by you know kind of the the failure modes of liberalism is very well addressed in these books. And yeah, I think uh, he's uh, he's very interesting. People so, should, should look him up. Um, Lord knows we could all use 
less distraction. And and by the way, I I looked it up not because I, I knew this at all, but um, I just looked it up while you were talking. So the world beyond your head on becoming an individual in an age of distraction. I'm pretty sure yes. that's what you're referencing. Exactly. Um, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, you know, like I said, Lord knows that we could all be less distracted and it, it's something that's like noticeable over time. And um, definitely the more connected we are to the metaverse and uh, the, the less we're able to actually slow down and actually think through something in a deep way um, or even read a book. Right. I, I know I noticed this in myself. I, I can't, can't sit down and read like dense, a dense book. Um, that's not like a novel that's catching my attention in some other way, but um, the way that I used to, I have to do it in smaller chunks because my, attention span is just totally wrecked by what I do all day. Um, so it, yeah. that, that's a really interesting suggestion. I mean, check it out. People should check it out. Um, they should also check out your Substack and your podcast, Alex Kashuda. Thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Thank you so much, Jeanette. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.